0: Good evening. Good to see everybody here. I want to be a little bit closer to you, so I'm I'm coming down. Hope you're having a good night. Uh, We get to continue our series in church history this week, a subject I love to talk about, so I'm glad we get to share this together, and I hope you'll find it interesting. Discovering someone's identity can sometimes be very challenging. For example, on June the 5th in 1989, in Beijing, China, The morning after the Chinese military had suppressed a Tiananmen Square protest by force, the military had a long line of tanks heading in that area. When all of a sudden a man, a random man appeared and just came and stood in front of the tanks. And he just stood there staring at the tank and he had something in his hand, his bag, and he kind of waved the the bag at it and... um, you know, I'm sure the people in the tanks were thinking, what in the world is this guy doing? Who is this guy? So the tank tried to steer right and go around him, and the guy just, just kind of stepped over and stood there, and then he tried to go the other way, and the guy moved back and stood there. And then finally, the, the man climbed up, up onto the tank, and, and he, he's just kind of looking around, and, and finally one of the guys comes out and starts talking to him, and you wonder, what in the world are they talking about? He, he comes back down, and he's just staring at the tank. And finally, these, these couple of guys come and just grab him and, and take him on off. And you're still wondering, who is this guy, and, and what, what is he doing? Well, no one, no one to this day knows who this guy is. He's called Tank Man, or the Unknown Rebel, or the Unknown Protester. And uh, Time, Time said in April of 1998 that the Unknown Rebel is a feature title, Time 100, The Most Important People of the Century. Isn't that amazing? He just stood in front of a tank, and now he's one of the most important people of the last century. In November 2016, Time included Jeff Widener's photograph in Time 100, the most influential images of all time. It's pretty pretty interesting. Another person who we're not sure who she is, she's called the, the Babushka Lady. The Babushka Lady. She was at, in Dallas, Texas, in November 1963, the day President Kennedy was shot. She's in the right there. She's got that scarf thing over her head. She had a camera in front of her face, and she was looking over at the grassy knoll. Now, we have a grassy knoll on campus here, but it was not that grassy knoll. She's looking over at the grassy knoll, and so as they went back and they played the tape, they were it just makes them wonder, does she know something that we didn't know? She's trying to get a photograph of the grassy knoll. And so uh, to to this day, we don't know her name. We don't know anything about the film. Uh, You know, she she had her hair covered and had a camera in front of her face. so They couldn't identify her. So she is the babushka lady. So who are these people? You know, sometimes identities can be hard to determine. And many years ago, there were people in the fourth century A.D. who tried to determine God's identity. Who is he? How, is, is God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And if so, how do, how do they work together? How do they relate? How, how does God coexist as one essence and in, in three persons? And so tonight, we're going to talk about God as a Trinitarian God. The issue in the fourth century was called the Trinitarian Controversy. And so I'm going to take you from 312 to 381. Okay, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground. Uh, but it's, there's so much happening there, so I, I want to I want to um, give you a little test here. So if you look on the screen, it says God is, and I want you to I want you to fill in the blank. So it's just just shout some things at me. God is what 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 comes to mind? Okay, God is three and one. Okay, God is love. God is our Father. Okay. Creator, holy. So, a lot of things you could put there. God is love, patient, kind. All of these things. And the answer I was looking for, you, you said it the very first one. I was the, well, the answer is Trinitarian. God is Trinitarian. And if you if you read in one Peter one two, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. So you see all three persons of the Trinity there, of the Godhead, as it's called, mentioned there in, in one verse of Scripture. Now, you're probably familiar uh, with the very beginning of the book of A.W. Tozer, uh, the knowledge of the holy. This is what he says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? The most important thing about you and me, he says, is that what comes into your mind when you think about God? When you say God is, what comes into your mind? That's the most important thing about you. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. It's pretty interesting. So it's important how we think and what we believe about God. And so um, let's let's begin talking about the early 4th century, uh, the early 300s. So there was a lot happening there. Um, Christianity was beginning to enjoy a new relationship with the Roman empire until this point, Christianity had endured persecution, uh, some in the third century and, and even before that some, but it was about to gain religious freedom. Now it would not become the official state religion until 380, but, but something big was about to happen. So Constantine and in, in 312, he was the emperor of Gaul and Britain. He invaded the West and was right there by Rome, and he had a, a significant battle at, at the Milvian Bridge on the Tiber River right, right outside of Rome. And so um, he had this vision he felt that God gave him, and he committed this battle to um, to Christianity. And so what he did, he put the letters Chi and Roe on the shields of his soldiers, and it represented Christianity. And so he went into this battle, and, and the, uh, the opposing... Uh, people came out and they, they crossed the Tiber and he ended up pushing them down into the Tiber. A lot of them drowned. And so Constantine won the, the battle and he credited that battle to the Christian God. He said, well, you know, God gave, gave, us, gave us favor. We won this battle. And so he had a very uh, high view at that point of, of God, of Christianity in particular. Now, some people will say, well, he just wanted it to unite his empire and, and to have unity. Maybe so. But but now Christianity would, uh, would know that persecution would cease and Christianity would be tolerated. And so in 313, Constantine met with Licentius, another one of the emperors of, of Rome, and they formed what, is, is what you know and what I know is the Edict of Milan in 313, the Edict of Milan. And so Christianity was not the official religion, but it could no longer be, Christians could no longer be persecuted. So Christianity became on, on level ground with every other religion in the Roman Empire. So it was a new day for Christianity. Now, but but religious freedom did not mean that easy days were ahead for Christians. In fact, um, days were about to get really difficult because there was false teaching. False teaching was nothing new in the early church because it had already endured uh, Marcionism. Uh, Marcion believed that the God of the Old Testament was not the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was one of God of hate a God of uh, vengeance, a God of um, uh, uh, discipline who, who punishes people. And the God of the New Testament is a God of love, he said. So they, they can't possibly be the same, the same, the same God. So uh, that was one heresy. Then there was Gnosticism, which did, did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. So Christianity had already endured those. But now here comes another one at the beginning of the fourth century that we're going to talk about. And so our view and so that discussion was going to, is going to begin in Alexandria, Egypt, in the year 318. And it, it goes back to a man named Arius. Arius was a pastor. It was, called, he was called a presbyter at that time. He was in the city of Alexandria, and he, was, he reported to a man named Alexander, who was the bishop of, of Alexandria. And so Arius was, he was an older guy. He was a very good preacher. He was known as a pious person. He was very popular, people liked him. And so um, as he studied the word of God, he believed the scriptures taught there was one God who is eternal, he's without beginning, he's sovereign, he alone is judge of all. And that sounds really good. But when he said God, he meant God the Father. He didn't mean God the Son. And so what he for God the Son, he felt like, no, Jesus was a created being. He was formed out of nothing. There was a time when he was not. That was, that's the, if there's one phrase you want to remember with Arius, it, it, his, his heresy was called Arianism. It was, there was, there was when he was not. There was a time when Jesus was not. That's what he's known for. He was a perfect creation and is above all created beings, but he's still a creature, according to Arius. And so salvation is possible, Arius taught, because Jesus displayed obedience to God. And so that's what he thought. So there was a time when Jesus was not. And so as a creature, the Son can have no communion with or knowledge of the Father. So Jesus was God in name only. He was not actually God, is what Arius believed. Now, you may wonder, um, how, did he, how did he arrive at that? And I, I think this is so interesting. And I want you to catch this. Because it, when you interact with people who believe differently than you, it's it's important to understand why they believe the way they do because it will help you to have compassion towards them because if you don't it's easy just to just well that, they're just dumb they don't understand why would they believe that but when you uh, when you see the rationale behind their decision you start going oh okay well I don't agree with it but I can understand why they might think that and so here's what I want you to look at Proverbs eight twenty two, Arius was a preacher, Arius was looking at the scriptures Arius was reading the Bible. And he came to Proverbs eight twenty two, where it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Now, if you know the, the larger context, Proverbs 8 is talking about wisdom. And so the Bible is saying the Lord possessed me, possessed wisdom at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. So, so Arius read that, and then he, Arius turned over to the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 1, 24. You read 1 Corinthians 124 and it says Christ in the last half of the verse, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then you go down to verse 30 and it talks about you're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. So as Arius read the Bible, Arius thought, well, Jesus is that wisdom. So Jesus is is in Proverbs 8.22. And so God must have created Jesus because Jesus is wisdom from God. Do you see how he arrived at that? Now, there were other scriptures that informed him as well, such as John 14, 28, where Jesus says, for the father is greater than I. Colossians 1, 15, Jesus says, says he's the firstborn of all creation. The words of Peter, Acts two thirty six, it says, God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then Hebrews 3, 2, where it says, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him. So, And looking at all these verses, Arius just said, Jesus is not God. Jesus was born. He's the firstborn. He's wisdom from God. He was created. And so, um, and by the way, Arianism is alive and well in the 21st century. Jehovah Witnesses actually trace their Christology back to Arius, that Jesus was created. So the the more you, you see how practical this is, I hope you will walk out of here loving church history because the more you learn about it, the more informed you are, and you can you know how to think about, okay, now how do I talk to someone who's a Jehovah Witness? How do I, how, how, what, what's beneath their, their, what is their belief system? Why do they believe the way they do? And if you can respond the way Nicaea did that we're going to look at here in just a few minutes. So I was talking, I hope you're having gospel conversations as Pastor challenged us. I was having one with one of my neighbors Sunday night. We were both taking our trash out, and he was there, and I was there. thought, oh, man, it's a great time to talk, and so we start talking. He's a retired professor, and so I asked him the question that, that pastor challenged us to ask on Sunday. He said, has there been a time where you've received Christ as your, as your Savior? And he said, no, and I said, "Well, what, what would prevent you from 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 uh, receiving Christ?" And he went on to tell me. He said, "I don't believe in scapegoats." I said, "Well, you know, actually, that's in the Bible. Scapegoat comes from the Bible." And we talked. talked about Leviticus, and he just said, so "I just don't believe anybody else could pay for my sins." This is this is right down the street here, and so it it, it was an interesting conversation. Now he didn't pray to receive Christ, and I hope that I said, "You know, if you have questions, I hope that you'll you'll ask, and I'd love to try to help." and Uh, So I hope we just, we're just beginning a friendship and a conversation, but it's important to know why people believe the way they do, and you'll have more compassion uh, toward them. So thankfully there was a man who stood up to Arius and opposed his false teaching around 320, 321. His name was Alexander. Alexander, as we said earlier, was the Bishop of Alexandria. So uh, Arius is under his authority as a local pastor there in Alexandria. And so Alexander was thinking about this whole situation. Word was getting out. This is, what, this is what Arius is teaching. So he started thinking, the church has always worshipped Jesus Christ. So either the church has been wrong, either we're going to have to stop worshipping Jesus, or we're going to have to admit that Jesus is a creature. That's what Alexander was thinking. So he he's just concluded, neither one of those are acceptable. And so um, he decided, he opposed Arius' teaching He condemned him. He removed him from his teaching post. And Arius did not receive that very well at all. And so Arius began writing letters to other bishops in other cities. Say, hey, this is what I believe. I I need your help. And so they were sympathetic toward him. And they started writing and saying, hey, Alexander is the one who's in the wrong here. And and so the whole thing started getting out of of control. So Constantine got word of it and said, well, I'm going to send a bishop there, hopefully who can help these two reconcile. And, you know, he tried, that didn't work. And so Constantine, who valued unity in the empire, said, well, I'm going to call a general council of the church and we'll, we'll uh, work this situation out. And so that's the Council of Nicaea in 325. And so at the Council of Nicaea, they met in uh, what's the modern day city of Iznik in Turkey on May the 20th in 325. And so Constantine, uh, the, the empire paid for all these bishops to travel to Nicaea. And it depends on who you read, uh, about how many bishops were there. I've read 318 were there, based on the number of Abraham's servants in Genesis 14, 14, where it says 318. Uh, Another source said 300, another source says 220. There were a lot of people there. And and the majority of them were from the Eastern Roman Empire, but less than 10 were from the West. And so these bishops gathered and um, they were there to, to just hear out this, this Arius is, uh, Arianism issue and determine what do we believe about Jesus Christ? Do we believe we affirm him as the son of God or is he a created being? And so, um, so there they were, all these leaders in, in attendance there. So Arius could not sit in the council. And so uh, Eusebius of, of, of Nicomedia spoke for him. Eusebius, this guy was pretty confident. He thought, you know, if I can just explain um, the the views that Arius has, everybody will accept it. It'll it'll just be real clear. And so, as he began talking, as he began presenting the the views of Arius, people, these other bishops started shouting, started saying, heresy, blasphemy, you lie. In fact, one of them came up and grabbed his script that he had written. He tore it up, and they were st- stomped on it. And so, obviously, they didn't receive his teaching very well. And so they, they denied his, his teaching. And on June 19th of 325, they, they adopted the Nicene Creed, what we know as the Nicene Creed. Uh, they actually added to it later, which we're going to look at. But in its original form, they adopted the Nicene Creed. And so we want to we bring that up and, and read that to you. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, for whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth, who because of us, men, And because of our salvation, came down and became incarnate, becoming man, suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended to the heavens, and will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit. And so they affirmed that Jesus is the Christ. And the key Greek word in this whole creed is homoousios, which means of the same substance or of the same essence. So when they said that he's of one substance with the Father, that's that word. He's homoousios with the Father. Jesus is not created. Jesus is God. Jesus is of the same essence, the same substance as the Father. He's just as much God as the Father is God. And so, you know, that that creed right there is the most recognized and agreed upon creed in the whole, in all of Christianity, in the whole world. Um, the, the Eastern Eastern believers, they adopted that, and, and so, um, so that's the Nicene Creed. And so you would think, um, well, everybody adopted it. All but two bishops signed the creed. So there were two bishops who held out who did not affirm that creed, and so those two bishops and heiress were exiled and removed from their places of service. And so you would think, well, man, that's the end of Arianism. I mean, that just shut it down right there, uh, but that would not be the case. Arianism would continue, and a lot of it was, was for political reasons. And so Eusebius, the same guy who had presented these views at the Council of Nicaea, he, um, he went back to and, and Nicomedia, and uh, Constantine apparently had a summer house in Nicomedia. And so, uh, you know, they, they buddied up there, and Eusebius was started talking to Constantine, and, and, and he was presenting the Arian views again, and, and Constantine started thinking, you know what? Maybe maybe I was a little too hard on old Arius, you know. Maybe I maybe I was a little I, I just reacted a little too quickly. Maybe I didn't handle this as well as I, sh- I could have. And so he agreed to restore Arius uh, to the church and said, you know, he can he can take communion in the church again. And um, he he uh, he would have resumed his position as a pastor in Alexandria, but he died in three thirty six. And so, uh, But even after his death, his views would continue on, as we're going to see here, until about 380, 381. Um, and so Constantine died in 337, and when Constantine died, Constantine was the sole emperor of Rome, but when he died, he had three sons, and so each son got a piece of the empire. So now it went from one to three. So you had three emperors, and those emperors were tolerant of Arianism. And so now you have all you have, uh, these bishops who were exiled because they didn't sign the creed. Now they're allowed to go back and serve because these emperors didn't really care. And so because of that, you have these heresy is still alive and well. Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria who opposed Ares, he died in 328. And so the man who would take his place would become a legend. And his name was Athanasius. Athanasius had been a deacon. Isn't that pretty interesting? He was a deacon from 311 to 328. And uh, he was at the Council of Nicaea, but because he was not a bishop, he was not allowed to sit in the council. But he was there. He was there learning. He was there being faithful. And um, he was in his 30s when he assumed the role of bishop in 328. He was not the best orator. He did not have the most polished arguments. But what made him effective was his relationships with the people that he lived with. And he had a fiery spirit. He had a commitment to obeying the truth. He had spiritual discipline in his life. Just to give you an example of his fiery spirit, on one occasion, uh, the bishop, um, after he became bishop, he received a letter from Constantine that said, hey, Arius has signed the Nicene Creed, and uh, he's going to come back, and he's going to come back to Alexandria. And Athanasius said, oh, no, he's not. And an and Athanasius went and, went and was summoned by Constantine, appeared before him, and Constantine was so impressed by him that he said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to press this with you right now. And so that, that's the kind of guy he was. He stood up for truth. And he became one of the church's finest theologians. Two particular writings are important. One's called On the Incarnation, and the other is called Against the Arians. And so for, for Athanasius, he wrote about understanding salvation as, as humanity's recreation, You know, Peter talks about that God has caused us to be born again. And so Athanasius wrote, he said, salvation is recreation. God is is recreating what is dead and decaying, and he's recreating us and redeeming our sinful, corruptible, fallen nature. So salvation is nothing less than recreation of our spirit and body into the full glorious image of God. It's amazing. And this is what he said as he wrote against the Arians. He said, Uh, The Arian heresy employs the speech of Scripture. See, Arius was using Scripture. He employs the speech of Scripture, as did her father, the devil. She uses force to enter the paradise of the church. She attempts to pass herself off as Christian. She has already led astray some foolish individuals, so that they have not only been corrupted in hearing, but receiving the eight just as Eve. His work on, uh, against the Arians became the classic response to Arianism. Uh, he gave, Athanasius gave his life to defending Orthodox Christianity, and he was the voice against uh, the Arians. He died in 373 after having been a bishop for 45 years, and there were only two periods in his life where he really had peace as a bishop. He, was, he was, had to live in exile five times, and most of that was, as we said earlier, for political reasons, because the, the Roman emperors they favored Arianism. They were sympathetic toward Arianism. And so when someone would raise up a, a, a complaint saying, hey, Athanasius is stirring up trouble. Okay, well, let's just get rid of Athanasius. Let's go put him in exile for a while. He had to live in the desert. And so he did that five different times in his life for over, over a span of 45 years, but he stuck with it. And so he gave himself to refuting this false teaching of, of Arianism. And so toward the end of his life, you know, Athanasius did not live to see the, the ultimate victory that we're, that we're moving toward in 381 of, of, the, of the Nicene faith. But he was encouraged because as he was getting older, there was a younger crop of, of, of guys coming along who were going to pick up the mantle and run with it. And those were known as the great Cappadocians. The great Cappadocians. So let's talk a little bit about them. The great Cappadocians were Basil who became known as Basil of Caesarea, or he's also known as Basil the Great. His younger brother, Gregory, he's, he's called Gregory of Nyssa, N-Y-S-S-A. And he's called, he's called that because he eventually he would become Bishop of Nyssa. And then his, their friend, Gregory of Nazianzus. Gregory, Gregory was from Nazianzus. That's why he's called that, Gregory of Nazianzus. These three lived in an area known as Cappadocia, which, is in, uh, which was in eastern Anatolia in modern-day Turkey, um, you know, so it's so interesting to think all this happened in Turkey and how now Turkey's like probably 99 point something percent uh, either Muslim. They're, they're not Christian. Uh, it's just amazing. All the, the early church, the Church of Revelation, all of that was in Turkey. And, and now it's, it's, completely, it's completely opposite. Uh, Cappadocia is largely a mountainous region, about 8,000 feet above sea level. It was pretty barren country both then and now. All three Cappadocians came from strong Christian families. Basil and Gregory were from a family of nine children, three of whom became bishops in the church. Pretty interesting. Their grandparents had been martyrs for the Christian faith. They had committed uh, Christian parents. Their parents ensured that the children had the best possible education. So Basil studied in Caesarea. He studied in Constantinople. And then finally at the University of Athens, which at that time was the leading university in the world. And so, as, as Basil studied in two of those places, he got to know Gregory of Nazianzus. Gregory Gregory was in Athens with him, and he was in Caesarea with, with Basil. So they created a a pretty strong friendship. But after Basil uh, had had come home from Athens, he went back to his home, and he you know he was he was pretty puffed up. He had been at the you know the 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 world leading university. He had this family had a great reputation and. He was offered a teaching position and rhetoric. And I mean, this guy had a really bright future ahead of him. And um, thankfully, he had a, a godly sister named Macrina, a godly sister named Macrina who stepped into his life and spoke truth to him. Now, Macrina had been engaged to be married. Her, her husband-to-be just died unexpectedly. And so she determined, you know what? I'm going to live the rest of my life. I'm going to be single. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, and I'm going to live for him. And so that's what she decided. So, when she saw Basil come back just arrogant and into all the things of the world, she intervened and just said, Hey, I really wish you'd quit listening to all these, quoting all these pagan authors and start listening to the Christian authors and, start and, and get things right in your life. And so, uh, you can imagine what, how he didn't receive that very well at all because he's educated, she's not. And he just thought, What does she really have to say to me? Uh, but something happened. One of their brothers named Naucratius. Naucratius was very close with Basil, and Naucratius died unexpectedly. Now, Naucratius had given himself, he'd forsaken worldly pursuits, and Basil had just completely engrossed himself in the world. And so when he died, it heavily impacted him, and it grieved Basil because, one, he's close to him, but he realized I'm not living my life as I should. And so he, so he went to Macrina and said, hey, can you teach me about this religious life that you live? And so she began to mentor him. She began to just pour into his life and just say, here's, here, here's what it means. And so about th- the year 357, Basil moved to Egypt, and he started learning, what does it mean to be a monk? He wanted to be a monk. Now, in those days, um, a, a monk, it, that was seen as a very, um, it was a great thing to do because nothing... One, you're, you're spending time with the Lord, but you're also serving the poor. They, they served in their they didn't just live off in a cave somewhere. They actually engaged in the city and the needs of the city and tried to make a difference. And so he, he studied how to be a monk. And so he came back from there, and um, he and his buddy Gregory of Nazianzus started this new community for men about how to, of, it's called monasticism, the study of how to be a monk. Uh, just as his sister Macrina had done one for women. So they, they started this place called New City. It was right outside of Caesarea. The poor were cared for, the sick were taken care, of, uh, taken care of, the unemployed were given a job. And so that he was just serving. He was happy to do that. He did that for five or six years. And then finally, against his will, he was made to be a pastor. He became a pastor in Caesarea. And, um, and uh, or eventually became bishop of Caesarea in 370. And so, as, as bishop, and all this will come together in a minute, but as bishop, he had many accomplishments. He established charitable organizations, hospitals, schools to serve the community. Um, he picked up the mantle that Athanasius had laid down because he died. He picked it up and just started carrying it down the field and moving it forward. And so, he opposed Arianism, he affirmed Trinitarian doctrine. Uh, he endured persecution. This is really interesting. On one occasion, he was having a heated exchange with uh, an officer in the, uh, of the Roman Empire. And so um, uh, the officer said, hey, I'm, I will take your things. I'll put you in exile. I'll torture you. We may even put you to death. And this is what he said. He said, all that I have you can confiscate are these rags and a few books, nor can you exile me for wherever you send me, I shall be God's guest. As to torture, you should know that my body is already dead in Christ, and death would be a great boon to me, leading me sooner to God. And so the officer was surprised. I thought, no one's ever taught to be this way. And Basil said, maybe you've never met a true bishop. It's interesting. Isn't history just fascinating? See, It's more than dates and timelines. It's people and it's stories and it's real life stuff. And so... um, Basil wrote this book called On the Holy Spirit. And Basil and the two Gregories, all the Cappadocian fathers, they affirmed that God existed as one essence and three persons. Now, you see, Nicene had been concerned with who is Jesus Christ. And now they were, they were taking that a step further. They were saying, okay, we believe Jesus is God, but how does God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, how do they, how do they exist together? How do do we explain that? How do do we clearly communicate that so that people can understand who God is? So they helped the church think clearly about the Trinitarian God in the latter half of the fourth century. They emphasized the unity of God's essence while paying special attention to his eternal existence as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they emphasized that there is one God, but he exists as three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, you, you and I know that. Yet you've come to believe that. You you can just say that like that. But it's because of people like Basil and, and the two Gregories that we believe that. Because they helped they helped explain that. They helped us understand that. So the language they chose to communicate uh, this truth about God was they used the word usia that we, we talked about earlier, or substance or essence, that God is one usia, one substance, but he's three hypostasis, or persons. So he's one essence, three persons. So this, this is how, how Basil communicated it. He said, we must therefore confess the faith, the Christian faith, by adding the particular to the common. The common is the essence. The particular is the person. Okay, so the Godhead is common. The fatherhood, particular. So God the Father, is, he's, he's a person. We must therefore combine the two and say, I believe in God the Father. This is what we just saying. Um, the like course must be pursued in the confession of the Son. We must combine the particular, that is the person, with the common and say, I believe in God the Son. So in the case of the Holy Spirit, we must make our utterance conform to the appellation and say, I believe also in the divine Holy Spirit. Hence it results that there is a satisfactory preservation of the unity by the confession of the one Godhead, while in the distinction of the individual properties or persons regarded in each other, there is the confession of the peculiar properties of the persons. So Basil, he faithfully served the Lord until 379. He died at age 49. And so he died right before the Council of Constantinople that we're about to talk about. So he didn't didn't live to fully see everything he worked for implemented. But his younger brother Gregory became bishop of Nyssa, and he was a gifted speaker and writer. And then Gregory Nazianzus, their friend, he was, he was the preacher of the bunch. He was an uh, outstanding preacher. And he oppo- Gregory Nazianzus went to Constantinople, where the city was mostly Arians, And he began opposing them and speaking out against the Arianism. And so in 379, things changed because a new ruler came on, on board in the Roman Empire uh, the death of the Roman emperor Valens in 378 left his nephew Gradian, the sole surviving ruler. And so Gradian pre- preferred to rule in the West, and he decided to appoint someone else to lead the East. So he selects this very capable administrator and general named Theodosus. Theodosus was born in Spain, and he had grown up, he grew up in complete devotion to the Nicene faith. So he had a Christian, orthodox worldview and so when he became uh, the emperor of the East in, in 380, um, he issued a statement in conjunction with Emperor Gradian that all should hold the faith which the holy apostle Peter gave to the Romans. Isn't that interesting? You've got a Roman emperor saying, I want everybody to have the same faith that the holy apostle Peter gave to the Romans. So this was a turning point, obviously, for, the, for Christianity and for the Nicene faith. From this point on, Theodosis was saying, there would be one religion in the empire, and that was the Christian religion. It's pretty amazing. You go all the way from Jesus to enduring Christianity enduring persecution to earlier in the century, which we said earlier, now they're on par with, with every other religion, and now they become the sole religion of the empire. It's, it's just all of that happened in less than a century. And so the Christian religion that affirmed one divine essence and three hypostasis or persons is what would exist uh, in the empire. And so Theodosius effectively drove out all the Arians from the empire, and um, he called for the second, uh, second general council of the church, which is known as Constantinople, in May of 381. The focus of the church was to affirm the Nicene Creed, or the focus of the council was to affirm the Nicene Creed, and then add some a statement on the Holy Spirit. Now, if you, I don't know if you picked it up earlier, but when you looked at the Nicene Creed, at the bottom, it just said, and in the Holy Spirit. And you probably wonder, why didn't they say much about the Holy Spirit? Well, because that wasn't the issue then. The issue was, who is Jesus? So they dealt with that, and then now the years go on. You had men like Basil and, and the Gregories talk, who talked about the Holy Spirit. So now they were ready to add some language uh, about the Holy Spirit. And so here's what they added. They said, And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who in unity with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And with that, the Trinitarian controversy was over. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one essence, three persons. The church agreed. This is, this is how Christians are to believe about God. This is orthodox Christian faith. And so, that's the Trinitarian controversy. Now, I want to give you a few, I'll give you five application points, okay? Because, you know, as you, as you study, as you learn, it shouldn't just stop there. It should lead to some type of transformation in our lives. And so I want to give you just some application points and then give you a conclusion. First, be thankful for the men and women that God has used in the past. And when you read, you read these people and you, you just figure man, there, these are, these are real people. They love Jesus Christ. Look how God used them. Um, it's so easy just to be only read books from our era and, And there are a lot of good books out there, but make sure you're looking back in the past as well. Because we can be instructed to see how God has used them and and it gives direction for how what he might want to do in our day as well. Second, make sure that you are submitting yourself to reliable sources as you study God's Word. Make sure you're submitting yourself to reliable sources as you study God's Word. This is so important especially if you are a teacher here or life group or men's ministry, women's ministry, D group. um, It, you, you scare me. If you, if you do your own personal study and don't consult any other sources, because that's, 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 I'm not saying it, it would happen with you, but it can happen. that's how heresies can happen. You read something, you think, oh yeah, this sounds good to me. I think I'll go teach it. They have no idea what the passage really means. And so, Always check your work with reliable, trusted evangelical sources. Do your own study, but then check it. So let me let me let me see what so and so says about this. And just it's it's just a check because God has gifted men and women with the Holy Spirit that are great at interpreting, and they and they put books out there that can help you and I understand the Word of God. And so make sure you take the time to check your work and to make sure that okay this is don't, what if Arius had done that. What if Arius said, when he read Proverbs 8.22, said, well, I think this is talking about Jesus. What if he would have gone to Alexander and said, hey, Alexander, I've been studying this passage, and I, I think this is talking about Jesus. He would have said, no, 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 wait a minute. No, this is talking about wisdom. This is not talking about Jesus. Just, just it, could have, it could have been nipped in the bud right there. And so as you, as you do your own study, there's so many great things online. There's hard copy, and we're, we're happy to try to help, give you, give you some of those sources if you want. But good, reliable sources are like guardrails. They keep you on the road of truth. They keep, they keep you from getting out of bounds. Okay, and so, so make, make sure that you submit yourself and to those who are gifted by the Spirit in those ways and who will help keep you on the road of truth. Third, who do you most identify with in this story and why? Just think to yourself, who is it that you most identify with that we talked about tonight and why? Do you, do you most identify with, with Macrina? Do you see yourself as Macrina, someone who's behind the scenes, who is just pouring into to a younger person, who is helping them grow in the faith and become more like Christ? Is that who you are? Or do you see your, yourself more as a, as a Basil, who, a Basil in his younger years, who's just consumed with the things of the world and, and consumed with success and academia and all of these things? Or do you see yourself as Athanasius? Man, you're committed, fiery spirit, man, whatever it takes. I'm not, I'm not backing down. Who do, who, who do you see yourself as in the story and why? Just think about that. Who, who is it that you think, you know, I really connected. I really connected with that person, or I'd really like to be more like that person. Fourth, give yourself completely to following Jesus Christ. Give yourself completely to following Jesus Christ. As we said, Athanasius lived in exile five different times throughout his ministry, Basil left his job and a life of prestige to follow Jesus Christ. Macrina lived a life of celibacy so she could devote herself completely to following Jesus Christ. And in our day, I think about just the idols of comfort and pleasure and leisure and sports and all the things that just pull for our attention. And we, and if we're not careful, we will start craving those things. And we want more and more. I gotta have more comfort, I've gotta have more. When I read these people, I see that they have valued the cause of Christ over personal comfort. I see Basil didn't even want to be a pastor. He could have easily said, you know what, I've got a successful career. I'm just going to teach. I'm going to be well-known. I've got this education. You know, Athanasius could have said, you know what, I'm tired of living in exile. I've been there, done that. I'm getting older. I really, I really don't have to do this. But the cause was greater than his comfort. And I feel like in our day, it's, it's flipped. We say, we say comfort over the cause. You say, no, the cause is good. I'm a Christian, but I, my comfort's pretty important to me. And so I'm just going to, you know, somebody else will do that. Somebody else will go visit on Monday night because I'm pretty comfortable. I don't really like doing that anyway. And so I, I just, you know, the cause is important, but my comfort's more important. And so when I, but you read people like this, you say, man, no, the cause, the cause is what drives us. Would you be willing, if, if God were, were just poking you, would you be willing just to step away from everything you had and just go move in another country if that's where God was moving you to? I mean, would you? Just think about it. Would you be willing to do that? that that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, moving away from the things that are comfortable here and saying, okay, Lord, I, I, I'm willing to do it. And he may not be calling you. To, he may be calling you to get involved with one of our partners downtown or Grace House or one of these things. And it's going to mean, okay, I, I'm going to have to value the cause over my personal comfort. Courtney and I love uh, international missions, and, and she, she would tell you this. If we get to the end of our ministry, whenever that is, and we haven't lived overseas, we will be deeply disappointed, deeply disappointed. If, if, if it, you know, and that may be for us 20 years down the road or something. I don't, maybe the kids are grown. I don't know. But I'm, tellin', I'm just telling you, we will, won't we? If we get to the end, because we just, man, we we want to. We we, want to do that. Fifth and finally, ask God to show you what what contribution can you make to the kingdom. Ask God to show you what contribution can you make to the kingdom. You see, Athanasius got the ball a little bit farther down the field. He died. Here comes the Cappadocians. They pick it up and they, they take it. And then over the years, the Protestant reformers, many, many, many others, they picked it up and they ran with it. And so they made a contribution. So you and I can, can think clearly about who God is. So I want you to think, just say, God, what, what is it? What, what, how could I contribute? What, what is it you would want me to do? Because I, 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 I mean, I, I'm willing. I just, I just, maybe I just need you to show me. God, would you show me? How can I contribute? God, maybe put it on your heart to, to start a nonprofit where you're serving inner city children. Or it could be that he's, you're gifted in languages, and you, man, you could translate the Bible into a language that someone, they've never read the Bible in their own language before. But you may be gifted and, and able to do that. So you say, God, what, what contribution would you have me make? Well, Nicholas Winton made a contribution. He was born in 1909 in London. He became a London stockbroker in the 1930s. In December 1938, he was going to go skiing with uh, a friend he'd been invited to, but instead He ended up going to the western region of Czechoslovakia that had just been annexed by Germany. And what he saw there just deeply moved him. And uh, the living conditions and the refugee camps were appalling. And so he decided to do something about it. And so he created this mass rescue system from Czechoslovakia, which included bribes and dangers and secret contacts with the Gestapo and lots of paperwork and nine railroad trains and a, a bunch of money. Um, he would meet with parents who wanted their children to get out of that situation and go to a safe place. And he, he, so he, he would meet with them and, and then he would go back and he'd, 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 he'd uh, communicate in, in England and say, Hey, I've got to have foster homes for all these children. And we've got to have money to, to help support all these people. And so people just began to donate money, and, and families said, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll take some children. And so in, in March of 1939, the first 20 children were, re- were rescued and, and brought into safety. And uh, Mr. Winton and his colleagues later arranged for eight more trains to come and rescue children. Over time, he rescued 669 children that would have been, could have been killed in a concentration camp. And by the end of the war, most of those children were orphans because their parents had been killed in a concentration camp. After the war, he married in 1948, had three children. He never mentioned it to his wife, all that he had done. Just never mentioned it. Just thought it wasn't that big of a deal. No one would really be interested in that. Just never mentioned it. One day, his wife's in the attic of their home, and she finds this book. And then it had letters in it. It had pictures, or uh, it had... um, the uh, names—I don't know if it had pictures, but it had names of children—and in the very back had a, had all these different names. And so she asked him, what, what is this?" And and so he he told her what it was, and, and uh, reluctantly he agreed to let her kind of probe a little bit further. And so she takes the book and she gave it to a Holocaust historian. And then next thing you know, there's a there's a show on the BBC called "That's Life" that aired in 1988. And they had all these people in the audience, and Mr. Winton was right there in the front. And the host of the show had the book. And she opens the book, back of the book, and, and she, she and all these names of children. And she says, well, here's a child's name. Her name was Vera DeMont, and now her, now her name is Vera, Vera Gissing. And Vera's in the audience tonight. She's sitting right here, and she was sitting right next to Mr. Winton. And he had, he had no idea. And so it, when she, they, he realized who she was, she hugged him. And, man, he's just doing this because it's just a powerful moment. And then, then the host says this. You, you ought to watch this video. It is powerful. The host says this. Is there anyone here tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Wenton? If so, could you please stand up? About 20 people around him just stood up. And he just starts looking around. That's it right there. He's, he stands up and he's looking around and he cannot believe. These are, these are the children he helped rescue. Unbelievable. You see, all those people before he knew that, they were, just, they were just people. But once he knew their identity, man, it was deeply, deeply emotional. And as Christians, God is not just beside us. God is inside of us. And the more we get to know him, his identity, who he is, the more deeply we love him, the more deeply we worship him, and the more committed we will be to following him. So keep pursuing Jesus Christ, keep loving him, keep studying the word of God, and just say, God, what contribution would you have me to make with my life? Would you bow your heads with me?